Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. your host for today's podcast. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Hilary Anger Elfenbein, who is the John K. Wallace Jr. and Ellen A. Wallace Distinguished Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Olin School of Business at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research centers on interpersonal working relationships, such as emotion in the workplace and negotiation. Today's episode focuses on the topic of individual differences in negotiations. Dr. Elfenbein, let's just get started. Let's start with a pretty basic question. So why should we study individual differences in negotiation? What makes it interesting? Well, thanks for having me on your podcast this morning, Laura. Um, So great question. I, I think that there is a lot of intuition out there that individual differences matter, in particular that personality matters, that intelligence matters, that social skills matter in negotiations. And so these intuitions actually kind of clash with the way academics tend to study negotiations. So a lot of research really comes out of this economically rational tradition and this idea that situations affect us, which they do, but in the end, the person is placed in these situations. The person is placed in this economically rational world and we react differently depending on what what kind of person we are. Are we introverted, extroverted? Are we um, aggressive or not? Are we good listeners? listeners, social skills, all of these things matter in the way that we approach the situations we find ourselves in. And I have a lot of students come to me and say, should I even bother taking your class? I'm not, I don't have the right personality. I I wasn't born a great negotiator. I get that a lot. I answer in shameless self-promotion. Yes, you should take my class. The truth is really that the starting point you have, right? It's everybody starts from a different starting point. And I'm not going to lie and say that some people aren't born better negotiators than others. And that early childhood experiences don't matter. They do. They matter tremendously. But wherever, whatever your starting point, you're going to learn from instruction. So it's like math, right? We're not going to lie to each other and say some people aren't just born with great capacity for learning math because they are and the research is there, right? No matter who you are, you still take math classes. There's no um, fourth grade classes. Well, you know, let's just test for aptitude and some people just shouldn't even bother. But the question is, where is their starting point? And I feel like with negotiations instruction and in out in the real world that you need to know what your starting point is. You need to know what situations you're going to be particularly effective in and which situations are going to be particularly poor fits for you. We can do that if we know more about individual differences differences and how they matter. So knowing more about people's starting points can actually help them improve even better and more effectively. I agree with that. You know, knowing how to improve and then also knowing where not to go. So you may actually find that there are some situations that are just such a poor fit for who you are that you want to bring a friend and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. I think in the modern organization, there's so much division of labor 
right? I mean, you decide when you have a team who's doing what, and you can decide likewise that there are certain people who should be the ones negotiating resources for the team, or there are certain people that should be sent, you know, there are certain people who are sent out in the sales role, and there are other people who would never do well in the sales role. And so part of it is learning how you can improve. And part of it is learning where should I put myself? And when when should I actually delegate something to somebody else or beg, borrow somebody to do a task that I'm just going to be a bad fit for? Or where are there tasks that I should just do my best to get inserted into? Because that's a place where I'm going to shine. Given how important it is, methodologically, how should we study individual differences? This is a great question. And I actually think that the research that was done before my colleagues and I arrived had some challenges that I think obscured the results and the importance of the topic. So to point out what methods I think we should use, I'll point out what methods were used that I don't think worked very well, was basically tossing people into one-on-one negotiations, measuring the personality traits of both sides, and then not being sure what to do with those data, actually, because individual differences by their nature are individual, but negotiation outcomes are by their nature dyadic or triadic or quadratic, right? There's more than one person in the room and yet personality is about the individual person. A lot of research that just tried to address this by either throwing out half of the people, right? By just saying, let's just look at the buyers. Let's forget about the sellers. Let's just look at the buyers or research that use confederates, you know, so fake participants or research that use multi-level modeling is actually an improvement on that. Or some researchers actually took averages, which theoretically doesn't make a lot of sense. Colleagues and I tried to take an approach that comes from research on personal relationships. So there's research on, for example, friendship. And this comes out of David Kenney's social relations model is what he calls it. And the idea is that you don't know what somebody is like as a friend until you see them with multiple friends and how they interact. So you and I may be very close, but actually no one else likes us. So if all you did was study you and me, you would think that we are great people to be friends with. You have to get five people all to interact with the other four people. And then you can say, all right, in general, Laura and Hillary don't get along with anybody, but look at them together. They do. But you need to say, okay, if you're trying to understand friendship caliber, you really need to see somebody with multiple people. And likewise, that's what we did with negotiations. So this was with uh, Jared Curhan and Noah Eisencraft. We had um, groups of five people. Everyone took turns negotiating with everyone else. And then you can take effectively the average. It's a little more complicated statistically than that, but effectively the average. So if I did four of these exercises, how well did I do on average across the four? Now it's no longer nested or confounded with who your partner was because you had four different partners and you've got the average across the four of them. And so now you truly have an individual stamp on your forehead of how good a negotiator you are. And you can then correlate that with all kinds of individual differences. When we do that, the effects are striking. And they're striking, I think, because first you just, you got the theoretical unit of analysis to correspond to the methodological unit of analysis. So first, I think that's what's going on. But the second is that, and this is maybe an indictment of the whole field of negotiations, Most of our research uses the effective of a single item measure. If I do a study where I put two people in an exercise of some kind and I study the outcome of that, I have one outcome measure. That's like effectively having a single item personality scale or single item survey. And our line of work, as you know, you just don't do that. You would always have multiple survey items so that you can see their reliability. And this old idea that my original advisor, Bob Rosenthal, used to say, error cancels and the truth accumulates 
accumulates. You need to have multiple measures so that you can average them together and get a reliable survey. Likewise, with negotiations outcomes, having people do four of these exercises gives you a more reliable outcome than having people do one of these. There are some pretty hefty correlations between various personality traits and negotiations performance. And I think that past measures kind of obscured this to the point where there have been pronouncements in this area of research. And actually, I find them hilarious and I present quotes from them in presentations. Every maybe 10 to 15 years, there's a large-scale review of negotiations. So a textbook or a, a major review article or a chapter in a major book, and they'll mention individual differences in negotiation. They stigmatize it and they dismiss it. And they'll say, there's no evidence that individual differences matter. Or they'll say, it's time to close the book on this question. And I think that the book has been closed prematurely. Absolutely. And I actually want to dive a little bit more into that even, because I think you've definitely convinced us that this is an important area of study. So you conducted a really interesting study of twins negotiating along with Noah Eisencraft, Jerry Curhan, and Elizabeth Dalala. Could you tell us about that study and what you found in that study? Absolutely. Well, let me start by saying the inspiration for that study was, as I mentioned before, students asked me if they should bother taking my class. And this is one of those areas where your teaching informs your research sometimes as much as the reverse. I learned so much from my students. And I had a few students say, I just don't think I was born a good negotiator. You have to be data-driven and evidence-based in your teaching to the extent you can. And there came a point where I thought, huh, that's a hypothesis. Are people born good negotiators? I set out to do a twin study to do a genetically informative analysis of this question. It is a very common paradigm to work with twins. It's to the point actually where people who are twins have developed an understanding that they are valuable partners in scientific research, that they are sought out for understanding of all kinds of, of different factors like addiction or intelligence. And so they're often very eager research participants for their, their unique ability to give back to science. What we did was we actually went to a festival in August called the Twins Day Festival. And it is held in a place called Twinsburg, Ohio, which was named, in fact, for the festival by a donor convinced the town to actually rename itself and host this festival every year. And it's attended by about 3,500 people. And it was in the 90 degree range and it was outdoors. And we had two big tents. And there's a research area where people freely enter knowing that they are going to be there to engage in research studies. So there was our study. There were people there signing up people for medical studies. There was oil of Olay was there um, <laughs> testing skin, <laughs> skin condition and giving out free samples. And so we were there and actually people had a lot of fun doing our studies. So what we did was we had four sets of twins at a time sign up and then we separated them from their twin said, okay, of these people in front of us, whoever is the older twin, come with us to this tent. Whoever was the younger twin, go with us to that other tent. They were 25 feet apart, couldn't hear each other, couldn't see their twin. And by the way, you may say, well, they're twins. They're actually the same age. But in twin culture, oh, they know. They know who came out first. And so we, we did that really just to be arbitrary and keep things organized. So then we had four strangers in one tent and we had four strangers in the other tent. And so we had them do these exercises. Anyone who's listening, if they'd like the exercises, they are freely available. We called it the simplest negotiation exercise possible because we wanted a community sample to have a very easy to relate to kind of simple instructions, simple to engage in. And really it took, I want to 
say between 10 and 15 minutes to read the instructions and do three rounds. The task was, here's some furniture that you're negotiating off of Craigslist. It's used. It's no longer available new. Here's what a used furniture store would sell it to you for. And if you were, that's if you were the seller, if you were the buyer, here's what a used furniture store would sell it to you for. And that made the range of possible agreements and go forth and negotiate. And then they did this three times with each of their three partners. People had a blast. They were laughing. They were having fun. And it attracted a long line of other people watching that these were people doing a study. And we gave dollar incentives to the people, depending on their performance in this. What we found was the first thing, well, we wanted this to be genetically informative, which means that identical twins should be more similar in their performance to each other than fraternal twins. So identical twins share 100% of their DNA, you know, more or less. I mean, it's a bit of a simplification, but they are distinct from fraternal twins. And we only looked at same-sex fraternal twins are basically like regular siblings who just came out together and they share 50% of their DNA. And the idea behind a twin study is that if the identical twins are much more similar to each other in their performance and versus the, how similar the fraternal twins are to each other, then there's some kind of genetic link in whatever skill or trait is being tested. And if the to the extent that the fraternal twins are similar to each other, that's evidence for family involvement, that you're more similar to your twin. There are all kinds of other twins study formats. So like there's the separated at birth format, the adoption format, and people thankfully don't separate twins at birth anymore. So those studies don't tend to get done really much anymore, thankfully. But what we found was actually that in this particular sample, almost all were identical because who really shows up to a festival to celebrate their twinship if they aren't actually very similar to their twin, if not identical to their twin. And they had dress alike contests, they had singing duets, there was a lot of twinship going on. So what did we find? Okay, so first, the twins were similar in their performance. And it was a huge effect. It was on par with the effect of how similar twins are in their extroversion or their intelligence. They were similar. So if I did really well against these three partners, my twin did really well against those three partners, twins. That's the first thing we saw. And now it wasn't a genetically informative sample by which I mean, we couldn't separate identical versus fraternal twins. There weren't enough fraternal twins. But what we can say is we don't know if that's nature versus nurture, but we know it's something about individual differences, because how could the twins be similar? They couldn't hear each other. They couldn't see each other. And yet their performance was similar. And their performance, by the way, was not just how many dollars they earned in the simulation. It was also what we call subjective value. How satisfied were they with the negotiation experience? If I felt like I developed good relationships with all my partners, my twin said that they developed good relationships with all of my partner's twins. And that one, you can say, all right, so people are, are different in how they rate these scales. But there was also a partner fact by which I mean, if I'm somebody who made everyone feel great, everyone reported that when they worked with me, they felt great. Then my twin was somebody who people said made them feel great. How do you explain that? Other than the twins are doing something similar. We don't know what, we didn't videotape them. We didn't, we didn't observe them as they were doing it closely enough to know what they were doing. They were doing something similar because the same people who made everybody exasperated, their twins made everyone exasperated. The same people who made everyone feel like this was a healthy working relationship, their twins made everyone feel like this was a healthy working relationship. So there's something that twins do similarly. You know, we don't know if it's nature. We don't know if it's early childhood experiences, later childhood experiences. We don't know if it's the neighborhood they grew up in. It could be anything, but we know that there is something about the individual that mattered. 
there's some way in which individuals who grew up together, who are siblings, who share their DNA, share their early childhood experiences, share their parents, share neighborhood environment, there's something that makes them behave differently. That's amazing. And another reason that I really wish I had a twin. That's so fascinating. I'm curious, you mentioned actually the 90 degree heat as one thing that sounds highly unpleasant, but I'm curious from the study perspective, did you find any challenges when you were conducting the study and and what were they? How did you overcome them? It was very intricate. So in spite of there being tens of thousands of research studies on twins, we learned that this was the first study ever in the behavioral genetics literature where there was unstructured social interaction between participants. So most twin studies consist of surveys, tests, medical diagnoses, observations of the individuals separated from each other. There have been maybe one or two, and actually our co-author is the author of maybe one or two studies where the participants interacted with Confederates, but no study had been done before where you actually took the participants and said, here, have an interaction with each other. And so the statistics weren't really there as precedent for how do you even analyze these data. So we actually created our own method. We called it the unacquainted twins round robin design. And I wish I could show you a picture on this podcast, but it's kind of hilarious looking. It's basically two boxes with a lot of arrows drawn between them. We had to come up with our own ways statistically to analyze these data. So that was intricate on the analysis side. It was in the 90 degrees. I had a 10 month old. It was the first time I was away from him actually. And so that was, you know, kind of physically uncomfortable. But the other thing was that you had to get eight people at a time. And it was always a zoo, right? Because you're getting eight people, you're separating the twins from each other, taking them to different tents. And it was a blast, but the logistics of it were intricate. So we actually had, I want to say an army of 12 people came out with us us to Twinsburg. We had a few different cars full of research assistants driving from Southern Illinois and St. Louis. We had to do things like the the tents came with a certain number of chairs and tables. We had to go to the warehouse club to buy more chairs. (laughs) We had wagons to carry our paper consent forms. We had to get permission from the IRB. So the, the, um, the ethics board gave us consent forms that were four pages and we got permission to shrink them so that they could be two pages on each side so it could be a single piece of paper just the sheer weight the sheer weight of all the pieces of paper was it was something sounds like a lot of fun though that would have been really fun to be part of that chaos these findings are just mind-blowing to me I, i find it just really amazing and really interesting and such an important emerging area of study thank you Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Hilary Anger Elfenbein from the Olin School of Business at Washington University in St. Louis on the topic of individual differences in negotiations. Please be sure to listen to part two to learn even more from Dr. Elfenbein. You don't want to miss it. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Tsai, Michael Gross, Jennifer Parlamis, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Tsai, thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.